Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Radical Polymers. Nation, running a water treatment business is hard. Dealing with your suppliers shouldn't be. And when I deal with the fine folks over at Radical Polymers, I have always felt like I have had a partner. They test things in the environment that we are going to use their products. They also make sure that if I have any questions that I get the answer that I am looking for. Mike and the fine folks over at Radical Polymers answer the phones. Folks, when was the last time you actually talked with somebody when you had a technical support question? Well, they make your issues their issues and they get right down to the problem. They offer best-in-class technologies with the first-class support that I just mentioned. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash radical to find out more. Scaling Up Nation, if you've been following my favorite books, you know Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich is among them. In this book, he analyzed what successful people had in common, and one of these commonalities that he noted was successful people meet with other successful people. He then coined that meeting a mastermind. Folks, life is too hard to do it alone, and that is exactly what most of us are doing. Starting in early 2020, I will be launching our own mastermind called Rising Tide. The Rising Tide Mastermind is made up of small groups of individuals with the focus on helping each other succeed. These groups will include weekly video calls designed to solve key issues, quarterly book discussions with action plans, quarterly one-to-ones with me, a live event, and so much more. I've personally been a member of a mastermind for years, and I know how key being in a mastermind has been for my own success. And because of that, I know how key a group like this can be in your success. The Rising Tide Mastermind is currently accepting applications. We have very limited spots, so go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to set up a 15-minute call with me to see if this is the key to your next level of success. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hello, nation. Trace Blackmore here, your host for Scaling Up H2O. And guys, I have to tell you, the year is almost over. I know I didn't need to tell you that, but there are so many things that we can do to end the year right. Don't think that you're going to start doing things in January and you're just going to coast through this last month of December. Folks, there are a lot of things that we can do to help get 2020 started off right. A couple of those things is get caught up on your bookkeeping. Now, listen, I work with a lot of water treaters and I know that we are not the best bookkeepers. So maybe hire somebody that can do that work better than you can. But you need to make sure you have accurate numbers. Folks, if you are not keeping accurate numbers, you're not keeping score. And if you're not keeping score, you do not know if you are winning. So make sure your bookkeeping is all caught up. Another thing you need to consider is revisit your pricing. 
I'm not trying to collude on pricing here, but I will say that for some reason, water treatment pricing has been stuck in the 1980s. Many water treaters that I've talked to are scared to raise their prices because the customers are going to go someplace else. Well, folks, business has to be a win-win. Now, one, if you're not keeping bookkeeping properly, you may not have this information, but you should know exactly what it costs you to be at each one of your accounts. And that includes all the products you have. That includes all the reagents you use. That includes your time. That includes the software that you use so you can do your reporting. Everything that you deliver to that customer, there is a cost associated with it. Do you know what that cost is? And are you being fair to yourself when you deliver those things to your customer. And what I find is many water treaters undervalue the services that they provide. Now, what that does, that means the market thinks that water treatment is not as valuable as something else. Now, if it doesn't cost something, don't charge for it. But those things that you are delivering to your customer, they need to be part of your price. And we need to make sure that we are charging true prices to our customers. So revisit your pricing. Make sure that you can make sense on everything that you are charging. Maybe that might even mean that you lower some of your pricing. But your pricing has to make sense. Come up with some sort of metrics to make sure you know what you are charging and it's a fair win-win for all parties. My third tip is to look at your taxes. So whether you are a business owner or you live somewhere where you have to pay taxes, and folks, that's pretty much everywhere, see what you can do in this current year to minimize your tax situation. You still have some time left, so there are some creative things that your accountant can advise you on that you can do right now, and that can help you with your taxes. Take a hard look at your business. How is it structured? How are things getting done? Are you satisfied with the procedures that you have in your company and they're allowing everybody that works within your company to do their jobs properly? but also effectively? Are there things that get in the way because we've done them that way for so long and they just don't need to be there anymore? So I urge everybody, whether you are managing somebody or you're just managing yourself, take a look with how you do things and make sure you're doing them efficiently and effectively. When was the last time you looked at your website or your social media platforms? Folks, I'm going to say that water treaters in general, I'm included, do not understand websites to their full ability and also the social media platforms. So how are you letting your future customers and current customers know about what you do as a company in a way that makes sense to them. And that, of course, is using your website. That is using social media. So if you haven't looked at that in a while, 
I'm going to urge you to learn some more things about those platforms because that's where business is going. As soon as you hand somebody a business card, they're either going straight to your website or they're looking at Facebook or LinkedIn. And then they're trying to figure out if you're somebody that they are going to give some of their attention to. So what is the information out there saying about you? Is your website accurately portraying what your company is? When somebody looks you up on LinkedIn, is that the message that you want to send? So take a moment and figure that stuff out. Business owners, I'm talking to you right now. When I work with other water treaters and we tour their facility and I look at their SKUs, more often than not, I find more products than they need or use in their warehouse which means they have valuable money tied up in inventory. My urge to you is figure out what these products are. Don't ever make them again. For whatever reason, you're not using them. But figure out how you can get rid of those to get something in that will produce income for you. So where is all your dead stock? What can you do with it? And then how do you make sure that when you blend a new product in the future, it is definitely a product that you're going to need and it doesn't become a new set of dead stock. Folks, inventory is expensive. And if it's not going to roll off of the shelves to make you money later, you don't need it sitting around. My last tip is start planning your holiday schedule. And I know you're thinking, well, I know I'm going up to the mountains with the kids and all that. That's not what I'm talking about. What is your company going to do for holiday scheduling? Do you need to contact an answering service? Do you need to set up specific email replies? What are the things that you need to do so if something were to happen while everybody is enjoying the holiday season, the customer can get to the right location and they can do that effortlessly and the company is prepared for it. So start doing a little bit planning now and that will save you a lot of headache if something happens in the future. Nation, I think I have a very unique guest for you today. I know him because he is the lead pastor at my church. And you're thinking, okay, Trace, what are you doing here? Who are you bringing on? But his name is Jeff Henderson, and he knows marketing. He's going to tell you about his credentials, and you're going to very quickly hear that he has worked with some top companies, and he has got some marketing expertise that he is going to share with all of us. And he's going to do it in a way that is really going to change how you do marketing. I am really excited for this interview. I know we're all going to learn a lot. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeff Henderson. My lab partner today is Jeff Henderson. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O. I'm really excited about this conversation. Trace, it's good to see you, man. I'm a big fan of yours and Thanks for helping the organization I help serve. So it's honored to have you here. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And we've got so much ground to cover today. I don't even know where to start. Uh, I, I think if I give your credentials and your history to the nation, I'm not gonna do it justice. Do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about yourself? Sure, well, again, an honor to be here. And I guess more importantly, you know my son Cole, and you guys served together. And then, so Cole's a senior in high school, and then my daughter Jessie's 20, and then my wife Wendy and I have been married for 23 years. So those are, those are the highlights. But I really grew up 
wanting, I'm a preacher's kid, so I promised myself I would never work at a church. Right. So I've been working at a church for 16 years. But I grew up a big sports fan, and I didn't know until that you could do sports marketing. So I really wanted to go do that. And that's why I started working for the Atlanta Braves in their sports marketing department and loved it. Eventually landed at Chick-fil-A, managed all their sports marketing and beverage marketing with them, working with Coke and Dr. Pepper. But then shortly after that, six years in Chick-fil-A, I felt uh, I needed to make a career change to help start a church, which is a whole other story. But I, I loved Chick-fil-A, never thought I would leave. But my wife and I felt like we needed to help start a church in the Buckhead area, which is North Atlanta. And so that church was called Buckhead Church and very creative name. <laughs> and so we stole this one. Go ahead, church. Kind of the same it creativity. Works. Yeah, yeah. At least you know where you're going, right? So, so help start Buckhead Church. I was the lead pastor there for eight years. And then I left there to help start two other churches in the Gwinnett area called Gwinnett Church, which you're a part of. But one of the things that I've realized over time, Trace, is that you, know, you have these two worlds. You have the for-profit world over here and you have the not-for-profit world as if profit is bad. <laughs> so it's like we're for-profit over here and we're not-for-profit over here. And so I understand why we say that from a taxation reason. But, I, but what I've discovered is that, that there are things that for-profit leaders could learn from nonprofit leaders and there are things that nonprofit leaders could learn from for-profit leaders. And the reason I say that is because I've been in both worlds. And the exciting thing about business nowadays is that we're discovering that doing good is good for business. And there's research that's proving that out. So having lived in both of those worlds, and I still do, you know, I, I love starting things and, and, you know, dabble in other things because I think that helps keep me sharp in what I'm currently doing here at Gwinnett Church. So that's a little bit of, of my credential. I've been blessed to work for thriving organizations and growing organizations. And so as a result of that, I kind of want to pass along the lessons that I've learned from those organizations. Well, we're definitely going to talk about some of those lessons today. I finished your book a couple weeks ago. Uh, you personally gave me a copy. Thank you for that's that. That's right. That's right. Uh, I loved it. It, it was it was fantastic, and I can't wait to get into some of the items that you talk about within the book. But before we do, you worked for one of my favorite organizations, Chick Fil A. Uh, I think the nation that well, some of them weren't familiar with Chick Fil A after several episodes that I've done with Chick Fil A. We've had some operators on, uh, we've had some people in corporate on. Uh, we just love their core values. We love how they're for something. You know what they're for, and their people feel that they're for them. You spent some time at Chick Fil A, so I'm curious about what that was like, but specifically, you knew Truett. What was that like? Truett was amazing. He, you know, I don't know a lot of billionaires, <laughs> <laughs> but he never let money change him, which is hard. You know, Abraham Lincoln has that great quote that we all suffer adversity, but if you really want to challenge somebody, give them success. And Truett never really let it change him. He lived in the same house that he and his wife, Jeanette, had. They just lived in the same house, even though just billions of dollars, not just from Chick-fil-A, but all of his other real estate adventures and everything. But he was just very humble. And true, one of the things I realized about Truett is that he was more interested in the business growing people than people growing the business. And that's how his business grew. And he understood this. And it seems so basic and simple, but I think sometimes we complicate this way too much in the business world and church world as well. But it's like, hey, we, we gotta have people that grow the business. But if the business can grow people and put them in environments where they're encouraged and challenged and, and understand who they are and put them in their strengths and talents, they'll, they're going to grow the business if they're growing. 
But what, one of the reasons a lot of businesses stagnate is because the people aren't growing, because they're too focused on trying to grow the business. And we should grow the business. That's a good thing. But what I discovered about Truity, he was, he was humble. He was genuinely interested in me and the people that he was around. He was genuinely interested in you know, making money because he was going to do something good with that money. And he was very frugal but very generous at the same time. And just very, very creative. I mean, here's the guy that came up with, invented the chicken sandwich, you know? He called it the chicken steak sandwich back in when he first came up with it. And he was also the one who put food in malls. You know, malls, when they were being developed back in those days, they were not gonna, why would we have the smell of food in the mall? That was gonna ruin it. And Truett said, I think this will work. Well, he's the one that came up with that. But his life verse, was that, you know, basically about your good name. A good name is better than riches and, and silver and gold. And, and, and so I'm going to focus on my name. And that was one of the reasons he chose not to open on Sundays. And eventually people would say, you're going to open on Sundays, right? Because it's a bad business decision. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're in a mall. Yeah. But he goes, no, no, I've settled this. A good name is better to be chosen than great riches. My name is far more important than the, whatever you can throw my way. So he settled that early on in his success, and it was a no-brainer. Now, I could easily make the case that that was one of the best marketing decisions he ever made because scarcity is a great marketing strategy. If you, if you don't have it, you want it. So Monday sales for Chick-fil-A are big because you took it away from them on Sunday. In-N-Out Burger is a fantastic example of this. Anytime you travel out west, or anytime I travel out west, I got to go to In-N-Out because they don't have it here where we are in Atlanta. And honestly, I love In-N-Out. I'm not sure the quality of their hamburger is any better than Five Guys, but Five Guys is right down the road, whereas when I go to California, I'm looking for a Five Guys. So there's something about scarcity. So I do think this Closed on Sunday is is a business marketing strategy, but he was just a very humble man, I never lost sight of why he wanted to get into this, which was obviously to provide for his family, but to have a positive influence. And that was, that's the corporate purpose, to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A and to be a good steward. And that's what he did. You mentioned in your book the time you were driving the Chick-fil-A car yeah. and you were actually driving Truett to an event. And, and I love how you described how Truett made you feel. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that story? Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's because I'm in my 50s now, Trace. I can't remember where we were going. <laughs> it was to a speaking engagement. I know that, but where was the speaking engagement? Where, how did I even, you know, where were we going? I can't even remember, but I do remember the conversation. I do remember him talking, asking me about how, how was Wendy doing? How are my kids doing? How, do, how am I liking being a dad? He knew my father, so he asked about my dad. We really talked about personal substantial issues. I remember we talked about how can you be a successful business person and a successful spouse or a successful parent because he did all of that. I mean, his kids are amazing. His grandkids are amazing. And, you know, if you look at a lot of families, this is Chick-fil-A is a privately held business. If you look at a lot of families that have experienced this kind of success and financial success, it typically at some point, third or fourth generation, the whole thing falls apart. And it's been interesting to see that the families, the, the values have stayed, stayed consistent. And so for me, I, I, got a, I got a glimpse of that in the car. But I, I genuinely thought, and I knew this before I even got in the car, but I was able to experience it that night, that Truett was more interested in Jeff the person than Jeff the chicken salesman. 
but I'm just not here to sell chicken, that Truett was here for me. And what was interesting about that is I would have already run through a brick wall for Truett anyway, but after that night, I would have kept going and run through several brick walls because Truett Cathy was for me. And if he's for me, then I'm gonna be even more for him. So you may ask us the question, well then if, why did you leave Chick-fil-A? But part of it was I was actually taken to a leadership conference funded by Truett, and this trip was funded by Truett, and it was at a church, and it was there at the church where I felt a, a calling or convicting that I, someday I was gonna help start a church. So my boss, David Salyers at Chick-fil-A, was the one that took me up there. So David is still good, great friends with, of mine, but it was there on a trip funded by Chick-fil-A where I felt like my career trajectory changed. And when I went to the Kathy family and told them that, they were, they were like, you know, we hate to see you go, but we're so thrilled that, you know, you're going to go do this. How about that? And, and Dan Kathy, the CEO, the son of Truett, he, he says that... Um, that I'm on loan to, to Gwinnett Church, <laughs> so, which is great. But unfortunately, I have to work on Sundays now. Uh, before, I was closed on Sundays with Chick-fil-A. So, but Truett was fantastic. Dan, Bubba, Trudy, the whole family, uh, Andrew, the whole family has just been phenomenal. Well, I'm sure glad you made the move because I love what you've created here at Gwinnett Church. And, and by the way, that's where we're doing the, the podcast today. I am curious, and you've alluded to this earlier, what are some of the similarities and differences from working for for-profit and nonprofit? There are a lot more similarities. I thought, wow, this is a really weird career move, and here we go, I'm kind of starting all over. But what I discovered, Trace, is, you know what's over here? People. And you know what they have? They pretty much have the same issues, <laughs> you know, good or bad. And and people want to be led. And what I discovered is the, the being in the Chick-fil-A culture, kind of being dipped in that culture and leadership, I suddenly realized, oh, I could take what I learned and apply it over here at Buckhead Church. And sure, it's different. And sure, the church isn't a business, but we do have to pay the light bills. Um, we do have to have encouraging conversations, great staff meetings. We have to have challenging conversations, just like you would have to have in the business world. You actually have to look at a P&L and go, do we have enough money to keep going? Where, where, where's the, you have to budget and all of that. You have to have strategy and you do have to have clear vision and clear messaging. And you need to help people you know, answer the question, what is the problem we've been gathered together to solve? Every business, every organization, I think needs to say, what, what are we solving here for the people that we're, that we're doing business with? How can we help their life make it better? And so I began to discover, oh my goodness, there's so many similarities here. And I really do feel like if business leaders can think like nonprofits, if you think about it from a nonprofit standpoint, we don't have anything to sell other than purpose. That's the only thing that we have to sell, if you think about it. Now, there's different things and all this kind of stuff, but ultimately you're selling a purpose. I tell business leaders, if you can combine purpose with your purchase, then that's a game changer. Don't just sell a product. Try to connect purpose to that product in some form or fashion. And when you do that, with every purchase, you have more purpose. And with every purpose, you have more purchase because people want to fund. What we're seeing in marketing surveys right now is that people want to do business with people that they think are doing good for the world. And that doesn't have to mean that, I mean, doing good for the world could be running a very successful business where you hire people, you have a great culture, and you treat people well. That could be in and of itself just remarkable. So I discovered that there's a lot of similarities on both. And if you could connect profit and purpose 
and bake those together, that's a powerful thing. So I tell business leaders, if you could think like a nonprofit leader, and the only thing that you have to sell is vision and purpose, then when you do have a really good product, man, that's a powerful thing to have. You got a really good product or a really good service. And oh, by the way, our purpose is really clear and compelling. And that's what I discovered, is that there's value in, in thinking in both ways. I was talking to a business leader the other day, and he said, you know, I appreciate you saying this, Jeff, but I mean, honestly, I'm not sure what the nonprofit world can help teach us business leaders. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, how many of your employees do you pay? And he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> you pay all of them. He goes, I said, okay, so you pay all of your employees. All right. So, so let me tell you what happens in my world. Every Sunday, hundreds of people show up at our church, and if they don't show up, like you, Trace, if you don't show up and the hundreds don't show up, then the whole thing falls apart. And you know what we're paying them in? We're paying them in coffee and donuts and T-shirts. That's it. We do get a lot of T-shirts. You do get a lot of T-shirts. Let's say four going at. But so I, I told him, I said, if that's it. And he thought, wow, I, I haven't thought about it. I said, so it, do you think your employees would show up if you didn't pay them? And he goes, well, no. And I said, well, you need to think what would, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your employees. What I'm saying is they've got to understand that there's a purpose waiting for them in the office. And if not, they're just going to hit the snooze button. And if you can pay them and give them a purpose, then that's going to elevate you to a different level. Because a lot of businesses compete on price. Totally understand that. But when you compete on purpose, your margins grow. Because when you compete on price, at some point, those margins get razor thin. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have competitive pricing, but I'm saying at the end of the day, if there's a larger purpose and if it's a clarifying purpose and if it's an inspiring purpose, and this isn't some pastor saying this, we're seeing research that says this, that people are willing to spend more for a company that they believe in. And, and honestly, I think this is good news. It could be alarming. The younger you go in terms of research right now, millennials, Gen Z, they are walking away from companies that are just doing business for business sake. They've got to give me a bigger purpose than just business. Because once a competitor comes onto the market, and then I'm going to go with them if they have a compelling purpose. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I discovered, oh my goodness, there's this thing that both sides, for-profit and nonprofit, could learn from and leverage. Because I do think we need more healthy, growing, thriving businesses and organizations. As you're speaking, I keep thinking of Simon Sinek's Start With Why. And I believe he calls that the golden circle and how when, when people understand the why behind why you're doing something, that creates the purpose that you're, you're speaking of. And you know, now's a great time to find out that I don't get paid as a volunteer. So thanks for telling me yeah. that. We're all learning together here. Only you, everybody else can say <laughs> uh, But But Joan, no, you're right. I mean, I look forward to what I do every Sunday because of the purpose. Why not translate that into our business and get our team as excited as I am to be here on Sunday? And by the way, you also get paid for that. So I love that idea. And no, I totally agree with you. And I think part of the challenge for organizations is they need to start with why. I totally agree with that. But they probably maybe more challenging is you need to stay with why. Leaders are repeaters. You got to say it over and over and over again. Because if you go on a, you know, two-day retreat, you come back with your mission statement and you say it at an inspiring staff meeting and you're, you've started with why. That's awesome. But if you're growing and you're adding more people and they weren't here when you came back from the retreat, they don't know. I mean, so how is your vision, how is it staying relevant day in and day out? 
And so you got to stay with why. You got to say it over and over and over again. And what I what I've experienced is a lot of leaders talk themselves out of this because they think, haven't I've already said this once? I mean, do I need to keep repeating this over and over and over again? And absolutely, because vision rarely repeated is quickly forgotten because we're just so busy. So you got to stay on message. You got to stay on why for sure. When you go to Chick-fil-A, there's a certain phrase that they reply when you say thank you. And they're known for that now. That took a lot of repeating. You were there when that happened. Do you mind telling that story? Yeah, so Truett went to the Ritz-Carlton and said thank you. And they said, not you're welcome. They said, my pleasure. And he thought, wow, we could take that, borrow it. And they won't charge us. You know, (laughs) this is free, you know. So, again, I, I think a lot of times we think we have to be creative if we had bigger budgets. And here's a great idea. One of the things that Chick-fil-A is known for that really didn't cost anything, Truett just picked it up from somebody else. But we're at the corporate convention. He has us all stand up. He says, thank you. We say, my pleasure. Got it. And he gets home, goes to a store, orders a chicken sandwich that he created and says, thank you. And the team member behind the counter says, you're welcome. And so from Truett's standpoint, he didn't get angry. He didn't get mad. He didn't fire anybody. He just knew, you know, if you're going to if you're going to implement something like this, it's going to take time. I love what my friend David Salyer says, that um, a program starts big and dies quickly. Like, this is going to be amazing, but a movement starts small. Any big movement in the world in history has started really small, but it's grown over time. And so that's part of the, that's part of the challenge here is, hey, I really want this to stick into the fabric of our culture, so I'm just going to say it over and over and over again. So the, the organization has videos of Truett saying this eight years of my pleasure, eight, eight years. years of at these conventions, just saying it over and over again. And so it just began to sink in. So anytime I go to a Chick-fil-A and anytime I say, thank you, Trace, and I hear my pleasure, I ask myself, am I staying on message? Am I staying with why as much as Truett did? Because it's going to take more than one inspiring speech typically, unless you're Martin Luther King Jr. And <laughs> not many of us are that great of a communicator like he was. So, so you got to stay on the why. You got to clarify the why and you have to stay on the why. What is some advice that you have for business owners that they feel that they've said it over and over and over again? And granted, it's probably not eight years like you just described, but what do they need to know to be motivated that they need to keep saying it? They need to keep that message in front of everybody. I ask leaders to do a vision inventory. And so what that is, is just walking around and basically ask the question, we, one of the questions we ask in the book, what do, you, what do you think we're known for? What do you think we're known for? And then what do you think we should be known for? And I think it's helpful to see what kind of answers you have. Because if people have differing answers to those questions in the office space, there's a problem with that. Because if there's confusion in the office space, there will be confusion in the marketplace. If the team doesn't understand what we want to be known for and what we are known for, the customers won't by any stretch. Because if there's confusion with the team, there will be confusion with customers. So I think asking, what what is our vision? What is the problem we've been gathered together to solve? What are we known for? What do we want to be known for? And just start taking a mental note. I actually think you could, you know, just send these questions out and just say, can you do an informal survey? We actually have a survey that's accessed in the book that helps organizations do just that. But if you ask these questions and you're getting the same answer, that's awesome. You've got unity, you've got clarity, 
and the team knows where they're going. But at the same time, you gotta just keep pressing the gas pedal forward. An example of this would be when I worked at Chick-fil-A, I represented the, the, the corporate, Chick-fil-A corporate with the Atlanta market. All the Atlanta operators are biggest market, they're a hometown. And I got a question one day from one of the operators that represented the Atlanta co-op, which is a collection of the operators in Atlanta. Hey, how much longer are we gonna do this cow campaign? Because hasn't, hasn't everybody already heard this now? Right. And that's a good question because the cow campaign, Eat More Chicken, is actually in the Advertising Hall of Fame. So it's a very it's a cutting edge, breakthrough, you know, it's a great campaign. And so that was a very valid question. So we actually did research. It'd been in 10 years in Chick-fil-A's hometown, you know, very well-received campaign. And even after that, we were beginning to notice that it was only barely starting to register in the minds of the consumers in Atlanta. Really? Yeah. And the reason for that is we're bombarded with messages all day long. So if I go to work every day and I got a cow tie on and I'm in a, you know, a restaurant and all I see are cow, 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 eat more chicken, we're going to assume everyone has heard this in our world. Everyone, we think it'd be easy to think in our county, Gwinnett County, everybody's heard Gwinnett, Fort Gwinnett. That is not true. There are people in Atlanta to this day who have still not heard eat more chicken and the cows. And so just because you have a billboard and t-shirts and all that doesn't mean that people are paying attention to it. So for me, that was just a great reminder that because I'm in this so often and go to work every day with this, or back in those days, I have a cow tie on and I'm eating around eating more chicken. I just assume everybody sees what I'm seeing. That's not true. That's not the case. So understanding and putting yourself in conversations with people that don't go to your church, not a customer with your business, don't understand your industry. That's helpful if you're trying to reach those people. What do you think? And so I think to your question, asking your team, what do you think we're known for? Why do you think we're here? That's vision inventory. And you need to get to the answers to those questions. That's great advice. You mentioned the hashtag for our church, for Gwinnett. When the building that we're in right now opened, uh, you didn't put Gwinnett Church coming soon. You put out front hashtag for Gwinnett. And that created a tremendous buzz. I'm curious, how did you come up with that? And then what did that do after you put that out there? The, the first thing we did is we asked those two questions. Because one of the things I want to tell your listeners is I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't already tried to do or trying to do. And that was what do we want to be known for? And what are we known for? And if I can talk church language for just a moment, Go right ahead. But when we asked that about our church, we weren't even, nobody knew anything about us because we didn't, we didn't really have a name. I mean, we, we did, but it was in these early, early startup days, which I love. And so we said, well, nobody knows anything about us. So what is the church known for? And so someone said, well, many people are more familiar with what the church is against rather than what the church is for. And we all just kind of looked at each other and thought, wow, that's both sad and an opportunity. And then I ask, well, what do we want to be known for? And that's, that's when everybody starts saying, well, we should be known for being four Gwinnett kids and four Gwinnett businesses and four Gwinnett schools. And so that's when four Gwinnett was born. And my, I mean, I don't want us to close down, but my vision would be if we decided to close the church down in a few years and sold the property and gave all the money right away to nonprofits, I would love for the, the community to rise up and to go, no, you can't close down because mm -hmm. if you close down, we don't go to your church, but if you close down, our community will suffer. 
And that's the goal for me, is to be a bright light to a community. So that's where Fort Gwinnett came from. But I, I knew that for many people, if the first impressions are really important. And anytime you get bulldozers out in a brand new piece of property that's you know being built, people are asking, what is it? And when they saw that word church, they would immediately think that's not for me. And so I wanted to create our very first impression to say, this is for you, you belong here. And even if they didn't know what it was. And so the hashtag for Gwinnett was an opportunity for people to, we started seeing them post on, on Twitter, uh, Facebook, like, what is this? Does anybody know what this is going to be? And that mystery actually created some conversations. And, and I got some, you know, some internal feedback, which I totally understand, which is great questions, such as, hey, how are they going to know this is a church? I mean, you're, you're being kind of ambiguous. And my response was, exactly. And all of that is by intention. I want to be ambiguous, at least in the first part of this, because what I'm trying to do is I'm, tr I'm not trying to deceive anyone. I'm trying to tell everyone we're building something for you. If you grew up in church, that's great. If you didn't grow up in church, if you have a bad feeling about church, that's okay. This place is ultimately going to be for you in some form or fashion. And so then we gave just a handful of volunteers, more than that, just t-shirts and just said, just wear these out. And when people ask you, what is Fort Gwinnett? What are they building up there? Tell them it's a church, but many people are more familiar with what the church is against. We want to be known for what we're for. We're for you. And those statements really in the early days, Trace, really started growing and building our church. And the thing I love about it is it's, it's, it's an opportunity for us to discover what does Fort Gwinnett really mean? And so that's, it's been so powerful. And eventually we had to put up a sign that said, here's Gwinnett Church. Because sure. like, once we've launched here, it's like, where is this? You know, and we're still having some, you know, some directional issues with Google trying to figure out where is this church? <laughs> so, uh, so we need to eventually, we knew eventually we'd have to say Gwinnett Church. But that first impression, we wanted it to be more inclusive to go, hey, this is, this is for everyone. And, um, and so that's where that started. But creating an opportunity for customers or potential customers or potential participants to go, hey, hey what, does that, what does that mean? That creates an opportunity to have a conversation. And what we wanted to do was not shout at people, Gwinnett Church is coming soon. We wanted to have a conversation with people. I think the days of shouting at people, they're still there, but they're becoming less effective. There's a shift happening in marketing. There's a shift happening in advertising. And it's, hey, the focus should be on you, not us. We're here for you. So let's talk about you and let's talk about how we can help you. And that's kind of where all that was trying to play into. You do a great job of setting us up to change how we market. Right now, social media has always confused me. I know several listeners out there feel the same way. And you think, I've got these wares. These consumers out there can use these wares. I need to educate them about the wares. And you say, there's a better way. How should we be using social media? I think, Trace, many organizations, if not most, but I'll just stick with many, I think many organizations forget the social in social media. What they're doing is digital media. Hey, here's our product. Here's what we're doing. Look how great we are. Should we do that? Absolutely. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. What I'm saying, though, is that there should be a balance. So I, I, let's pick on church leaders. I'll tell church leaders, let's go to Instagram, your Instagram page of your church, and let's count how many posts of the last 10 posts are about the church and how many are about the people you're trying to serve and highlighting your community. And typically it's 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 10 are about the church. We've got a new sermon series coming up. 
we got a great kids ministry, all that. Should you, should you share that? Absolutely. That's part of how you are for your community. But there needs to be a balance. So one of the things we do is we do something called Fort Gwinnett Friday, where we just highlight local businesses. And it's not necessarily businesses of people that go here. It's just we believe one of the best things we can do for our community is to help businesses grow. And that's one of the things that we, that we do. But a sports analogy to kind of share with you what I'm thinking about. And, and I think in old school marketing, basically, if you think of a stadium, the business is on the field trying to score a touchdown and they want the customers in the fans, in the stands, is cheering them on as raving fans. That's okay. I think where the game is going is you need to flip the script, that you need to put the customer on the field and the business organization or the team needs to be in the stands and they need to be cheering that customer on and saying, way to go, way to go, way to go. We see you, we notice you, we're here for you. And that's what social media can do. It's about shifting the spotlight from the business to the customer and saying, hey, we see you, we notice you, we're here for you. So an example of that is when I was explaining this to a friend of mine who leads a large nonprofit organization doing incredible work. She said, oh, I think I know what you're talking about. So the other day, I'm a big Starbucks fan, so I posted a picture of my Starbucks mug at Starbucks and tagged them. And Starbucks commented back to me and said, thank you, we're so grateful for you, thanks for being a customer. I was so amazed that Starbucks commented back to me. So I took a screenshot and sent it to all my friends. And I said, so, okay, here's my question. What other Starbucks post on Instagram, when they're posting on their page, have you took a screenshot of and sent it to your friends? And she said, oh, I've never done that before. And I said, that's what I'm talking about. So this whole idea of less post and more dialogue is really, really important. Now, what happens is business leaders will go, I don't know how to scale that. Well, there's a way to scale that. But let's just say it from this standpoint. I love what Andy Stanley says when he says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. If you're Starbucks, you might not be able to like every Instagram post. There's a way to do that, by the way. And you may not have a dialogue with every customer, but don't let that stop you from having dialogue with some customers, at least on a daily basis. And so part of our challenge around here is that we want to try to comment on a few posts every day and like a few posts every day, not just from the Gwinnett Church Instagram page, but from our team's perspective as well. And that allows a company that's growing, if your business is growing, to grow small because the more personable you are, the more remarkable you'll be. And the biggest, biggest missed opportunity right now for especially large brands is they're not engaging their social media followers. What they're doing is they're just shouting at how great their, their company is. But I was with a large multi-billion dollar brand the other day and they had 700,000 followers on their Instagram page. And I said, it's not just 700,000 followers. It's 700,000 followers times how many followers they have. That's your potential influence. And if you can get them to talk about your business, then you're reaching people that they have influence with. And the reason that's important is a business is no longer what it tells customers it is. A business is what customers tell other customers it is. That's where the game is going. That's positive word of mouth advertising. So I just don't think businesses are leveraging the social in social media. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book as well, because I I give some specific strategies about how to do that. But the biggest is you've got to shift the spotlight from how great we are and we're better than our competition. I understand that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. 
I'm just saying that's going to have a, a less effect impact for your business going forward. We're already seeing this shift happening. I was with a, a telecommunications industry the other day, um, you know, the mobile phone industry and all that. And it's all about how much better we are than our competitors. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell them, that's not surprising information to us. It's not surprising information that you think you're better than your competitor. Right. We don't really care. What we want to know is how can you help my life? And that's why I feel like if, if I, I'd like for one day to work for Sprint or Verizon or AT&T or whomever, because we are in the biggest technological or communication change in generations. But we're noticing that in 2011, 2012, there was a huge spike in anxiety among teenagers. And sociologists are saying, we think we can figure why that happened in 2012. It was the rise of smartphones. And this isn't a diatribe against technology, but there's there's a massive issue that we're only beginning to understand the grips of. A friend of mine this morning, his teenage daughter is in the hospital suffering from chest pains from a panic attack. Part of that, my hunch would be, you're going to be tracing this back to something that's going on with smartphones. Now, the reason I tell you that is I think advertising could talk about that and say, hey, you know what? As a communications company, we're going to help you with your teenagers to avoid anxiety and depression. We're going to give you some tips about how to lead in a high technology world. And if you do that as a business, you're showing me that you are for me as a parent, and I'm going to return the favor. I don't care if it's a few dollars more. I'll be for you. I say all that to say that we're going to have to show people how we're for them. And if not, there will be a competitor that will come in and, and do that. So that's why with social media, there's a huge opportunity to get more personable. You become more remarkable, and you talk to people on a really personal level. Yeah, I love how you started out what you said that so many people don't look outside of the box because they can't do it for everybody. Oh, we can't be fair across the board, so we're just not going to look for different ways. What's a good way to get over that? Well, I give you a pretty great example. Like, how are we gonna are we gonna make some businesses mad by not doing featuring them on Four One at Friday? Well, for me, I'm thinking we can't highlight every business. But hey, we may get to you down the road. It's one every Friday, it's one every Friday, it's one every Friday. And so I think it's the consistency effect. And this is another important social media tool. Consistency is key. Being consistent and having a consistent presence. Yes, again, you do need to post about your products. You do need to post about what you're doing, but you also need to dialogue and engage with customers on a regular, frequent basis. And this is why I think a lot of organizations make a mistake by putting social media in the advertising department. And so as a result, social media is treated as advertising. That's not what this is. This is customer engagement. And it's not customer service. Customer service, if I can pick on my former world, my waffle fries were cold. I want y'all to know about that. Can I get some free waffle fries? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, here's hot, fresh waffle fries or come in and we'll give you you know free coupon for the next visit. And that's the expectation now. Absolutely, that's customer service. Customer engagement, give you an example. Uh, let's take Home Depot. Home Depot, hundreds of thousands of followers, but I was with them recently. I said, let me show you one of your followers. Her name is Dana. Dana just got engaged. By the way, she's following you, Home Depot. So this is pretty cool. She just got engaged. If you went on her platform and said, Dana, congratulations from your friends at Home Depot on your engagement, she would notice that. 
But let's go six months into the future. She's married. She and her husband wake up one Saturday morning. They hate their kitchen floor. They're like, let's do something different. They're driving down the road. They got Lowe's on one side and Home Depot on the other. Do you think that conversation would, would, would bubble up? Absolutely. Because the more personable you are, the, the more remarkable you be. Home Depot wished us congratulations on our engagement. We're going to trend toward the right and go orange instead of blue. And so that's where this is going. But you, you can't talk yourself out of going, I can't like every you know, 700,000 followers. You can engage a little bit. It's those personable wow moments. And I, that's why I love the former CEO of Home Depot, Frank Blake, he would write thank you notes to his associates in the stores. He couldn't write all you know, thousands of them, but he would write enough thank you notes every week that it began to total up over time. That's the power of consistency. And you're huge on thank you notes. Uh, I've actually received one from you. Uh, and I tell you, the, the feeling that I got when I read that, I still have it. I don't have the ad or, or anything else that came from Home Depot. But so many people don't put pen to paper anymore. When you get something like that, you realize somebody did take some extra time and you mailed it, you put a stamp on it, you took it to the post office. You mention about thank you notes in your book. I'm assuming you have a system for that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely, because you can't leave it to good intentions. I need to have a, you know, I need to write more thank you notes. There needs to be a system. And so I have a system. There's some notes right here that are with me. There are notes in my glove compartment. There are notes in here uh, in my bag so that I'm at a restaurant and uh, the person's late. Um, oh, I've, got, I've got time to write thank you notes. But my goal is to write three thank you notes a day, five days a week. And I, now am I perfect with that? No. Am I pretty good at that? Yes. You know why? Because I have a system and I have a goal. And I'm not leaving myself to, I need to get around to this somewhere. I mean, these, these notes are, I have to put these notes that are in this bag here in my, um, in my bag as a reminder, did I get to these today or did I not? Now, Frank Blake is like the Michael Jordan of thank you notes because he would write a hundred, a hundred a week. And, and I really, if you look at his tenure at Home Depot, Home Depot was in a tough situation. They had fired their board, their CEO, the board did. They tapped Frank to be the CEO. If you were to ask Frank, which I did, it's in the book, what was one of the most important things you did to, to lead that turnaround? He would say thank you notes. And, you know, there's part of me, maybe it's just me and like. There's got to be something more than that. And sure, there were. But Frank is saying, no, this was one of the th most important things. And he said, if you will appreciate people, they will rise to that level of appreciation. They'll just do more. And it's not in, in a manipulative way, because what you're doing is you're genuinely thanking people for something they did. It's not, Trace, you're breathing. Way to go. That's awesome. <laughs> It's Trace, I heard this story about you and you did this and it got back to me actually, which is phenomenal. People are talking about you. Hey, here's good news. People are talking about you in a really good way and here's the story I heard. So Frank would actually, he set up a system. He would have the different regions, Home Depot regions, collect stories and send them to him and then he would spend Sunday afternoon writing these notes. And my favorite Frank Blake story is he was in a store one time and a Home Depot associate came up and said, Mr. Blake, I got a note from you. Thank you so much. But could you write me another one? And he said, well, sure, but why do you need another one? And he said, well, when I got your note, my wife and my friends, when I showed it to them, pause, you get to your point, Trace. He, he didn't just throw the note in the trash. He's now showing it to his friends. They said, this can't be real. 
you didn't really get a note from the CEO of Home Depot. And if you put the note underwater, the ink will not run because it's computer generated. He didn't really write you in. <laughs> Which these have to be, you know, some pretty negative people to have in his life, right? So, so he goes, oh, you're probably right because how could the Home Depot CEO actually write me? So he puts the note underwater. The good news is the ink ran. The bad news is the ink ran and it ruined the note. That's why he was saying, could you write me another one? <laughs> but the reason I share that story is to me, it's kind of disheartening in the sense that the bar is so low in organizational life that when people see a handwritten note from someone, they think, oh, that can't possibly be true. But for, for your listeners and leaders, this is a great opportunity. You don't have to be a rocket scientist necessarily if you'll just increase the letter, the, the number of thank you notes that you're maybe currently writing that's going to have a profound impact. Now, granted, getting a note from the CEO of Home Depot, if you work at Home Depot, that's one thing. But let's, let's not talk ourselves out of encouraging people because encouragement is never small when you're on the receiving end of it. So I tell my kids, and you know my son Cole, hey, if y'all go on, as you get grow older, if you'll just show up on time and write handwritten notes, you're going to be fine. <laughs> that's going to set you far above a lot of folks, you know. So I just really genuinely believe it's not just thank you notes. Thank you notes is a mechanism of believing abundantly and appreciating consistently, which a lot of organizations don't do. And that leads to the culture that they're creating. So let's speak on culture, because I'm sure we have listeners today that are thinking if my company started doing this, it would be fake because I don't feel that they're for me. So for those listeners... What do they do? Because now they feel helpless. They're working for a company that might not feel that the company's for them. They want to feel that the company's for the community and they want to get this movement started. What can they do? I think all great change begins with you and me and us. So waiting on the change to happen usually means the change won't happen. And I would try to embody and be the change that you want to be. So I would start acting like you wish your boss would act. And if you wanted to be encouragement, encouraging, if you wanted to do what we're talking about in terms of being for others, then you need to start and you be the pioneer and you go forward and you do it. And I talked to a lot of employees that would say, I, I just, I'm frustrated with my boss and, and how, do I, how do I get them to see things from my perspective? Well, one of the ways is you embody how you want them to lead and how you want them to serve. And... That's, I think, for us, trying to live out and be in the culture that we would want to create, be created at our, our organization. Um, I mean, you're not, you, you've got limited, we all have limited control, but start living this out in your own life. And I think what you'll begin to discover is people will be drawn to you because of your, your, your living this out. I, I think it's actually... These two questions, what do you want to be known for and what are you known for? They're not just growth questions for organizations. They're growth questions for our careers and for ourselves. You can actually ask those questions personally. What do I as Jeff or what do you as Trace want to be known for? But the second question is not ours to answer. The second question is what are we known for? That's when you go around and ask the people that work with us, the people that do life with us, hey, what's Trace? This is what Trace says he wants to be known for. Is he really living up to that? And there's going to be a gap. There's a gap in any organization. There's a gap in any person. But the, the, the gift of every day is trying to shrink the gap between those two questions. 
So I would tell those that would say, my, my organization is not like that. Okay, great. Then here's the cool news. You get to be the change agent and it gets to start with you. Or don't do anything, but I guarantee you nothing will change if you don't do anything. Right. And that's the, that's the tricky thing about organizational culture. Culture is created by default or by design. If you say, I don't have the time for it, okay, then that's how you're creating your culture by default. I don't have time for it. And that's, you're creating your culture. It's, it's one that's not gonna be very healthy because you don't have your eye on it. If you create it by design and try to intentionally create a culture that's for others, it's not gonna be perfect, but it's gonna be far better because you're very intentional about it. And that's why I felt it was a stewardship responsibility working at Chick-fil-A and now working at North Point Ministries. Both are in their industries. You know, North Point was recently named the largest church in America. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a growing church. Chick-fil-A will be over $10 billion in sales this year. What I discovered is that their cultures were thriving, and there's a reason for that. They, they created them by design. So what I did in the book is I just kind of took some best practices from both organizations and from other people that I've learned from, Frank Blakeway being one, Cheryl Bachelder, the former CEO of Popeye's Chicken being another, and others, and said, here's what I learned from them, and I bet if we follow their lead, we will create a four culture that will eventually flow to the customers. And here's the final thing I'll say on this. The customer is eventually treated like the team is treated. I mean, I'll pick on my former restaurant industry experience. If you go into a restaurant, let's say a quick service restaurant, as an example, and you walk up to the counter, I can tell how the person behind the counter is being treated because it's flowing right to me. If they don't look at me in the eye, if they treat me like I'm bothering them, that's how they're being treated. But if I get eye contact, if I get a smile, if I get a, my pleasure, if I get a, hey, how was your visit satisfactory today? I'm here for you. Then that's how he or she's being treated because you can't have a healthy customer culture with a dysfunctional team culture. It's why in the church world, why a lot of churches are suffering. The reason a lot of churches are suffering is because those churches are terrible places to work. And it's just going to flow to the people that come into the church. It's an, it's an unquestioned reality of life. The customer will eventually be treated like the team is treated. So that's why this whole idea of being for the team is so important. But you can't wait on the CEO or the boss. You've got to lead it, and you've got to go for it. And I think once you do, you can help lead the way. And, yeah, you may, it may come to a point where you're like, you know what, I think I'm going to lead this organization. Cool. Now you've taken steps to create your own culture in this. You may want to go start your own thing. You get to lead the way in terms of the culture that you want to create. So I wouldn't wait on it. I would go ahead and be for others right now. So you say it's up to us to close the gap. What are some strategies behind that? Yeah, every organization has an opportunity to close the gap. So there shouldn't be any alarm to reality. Hey, we're not a perfect organization. But I think once you rally around these two questions, you discover that there's four groups of people to be for. There's for the customer. There's for the team, which we've talked about. There's for the community, which is a larger purpose. Like, what, what are we doing to help the community better? But then there's this fourth one that I think some, sometimes may be a little bit surprising, but it's for you. The organization truly needs to be for you. And I need to make sure that I'm for me, which may sound a little contradictory in the sense that I'm saying we need to be for these other three, but then I'm also saying I need to be for me. What does that even mean? Well, here's why this is important. One of the best gifts, let's just pick on me, one of the best gifts I can give Gwinnett Church and the team here 
is a healthy, rejuvenated me and an inspired me. If I'm not inspired, if I'm not emotionally healthy, if I'm not rested and rejuvenated, that will flow to the other three in a negative way and I won't be the person or leader I could potentially be. So I have to be for me. And the strategy I talk about in the book, Trace, is to remain inspired, not get inspired. That's good. That can come at a conference or you go to an inspiring movie. That's cool. That's great. That has a limited shelf life. The goal is to remain inspired. So how do you remain inspired? Well, I give seven strategies in the book, but one of those is to ask big. Ask big of someone. And I think the reason we shy away from asking big, of having these big requests, is because we're pretty convinced that people are going to say no. And what I've discovered, this is especially true in sales, the people that can push through the no's are the most successful salespeople because they don't let the no stop them from asking big. Now, they may get a no from this person, but they're going to keep asking and keep going. They're not going to allow, they think they're just now, they're one step closer to a yes with another customer. And in church world, where I discovered this to play out is, you know, we have to raise money. That's if, if we don't raise money, then everything falls apart, and especially in the early days. And there, you, there's nothing to point to other than just a dream and an idea and a purpose. So I had to sit down with people and ask people for money, which is incredibly awkward, and I'm not good at it. And I would talk myself out of it because I would, I would think, well, you know, I don't know if they're interested or anything. So I would prevent people from even saying yes because I wasn't presenting the ask. And then I don't know where this happened, but I just remember realizing my responsibility is the ask. Their responsibility is the answer. And I'm not going to talk them out of or not. I'm going to talk myself out of giving them an opportunity to say yes or no. My responsibility is, is just to make the ask. So I would implore your listeners, Trace, to keep asking big. And yeah, you're going to get some no's, but you're going to get some incredible yeses. And there's this commercial, I can't, maybe it was for a bank or or something, but this little kid growing up and he kept asking, you know, they would give him one scoop and he goes, hey, can I get another? And then he would go and he's, hey, can I get another, uh, you know, another bonus, another, he just kept asking. And so I would encourage you to ask big, but your challenge is going to be to keep pushing forward by making those big requests. And I mean, I've written people like Warren Buffett, you know, would you meet with me? And, and Warren Buffett wrote me a letter back. I mean, here's the, like the richest man or the, now the third richest man in the world. And now he said, dear Jeff, no, I'm not gonna <laughs> meet with you. But I have a letter from one of the richest men at one time, the richest man in the world, and, and your listeners, you don't. So, but there have been requests I've made that I've gotten yes for. And so I, I just want to be that I'm going to lean on asking big versus talking myself out of it because my responsibility is to make the ask. They're going to answer however they want to. That's cool. And if they say no, totally get it. Who am I? They don't know who I am. That's cool. But I'm still going to ask big because there are going to be those times I get some yeses. I love that paradigm shift because a lot of times we're just worried about what the answer is going to be. So we don't, we don't ask. I yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And of course, if we don't ask, we're never going to get it. Absolutely. And so, but you, you've got to, you've got to continue to be inspired and remain inspired. And I think when we, when we start losing a little bit of that inspiration, 
our vision lowers and then we go, oh, they would never, or I'm not even going to ask, or I'm not even going to bother them. And I'm just not going to do that because what I've learned is if I, if I have a compelling purpose and of why to meet with them, like if I wrote Warren Buffett a note and said, I'm, I'm asking you for money, I've made never even heard anything back. But if I give them a reason why, I think I, I mean, I did hear back, but I think when I have a part of me that goes, I wonder if this can happen. And I want to keep that alive. Because you're, when you're asking big, you've got two voices going in your mind. Wow, this would be really cool if they say yes. And then the other voice is, there's not a chance this is going to happen. Right. And typically, the there's not a chance this is going to happen wins out. And if that happens, then yes, we'll never get a yes because we've not given them an opportunity to say no. I'm going to give people an opportunity to say no. And that, that invites rejection, but it also invites possibility. Well, again, super fan of the book, really enjoyed reading it. You do a great job of outlining all the things that we're talking about here and so many more. It had to have taken you a lot of time to write. What motivated you to write the book? It's interesting about, I don't know, five or six years ago, Trace, I started getting like one day I got a coffee mug in the mail that said for Ontario. And I thought, oh my goodness, people in Canada are noticing this. And I started getting t-shirts in the mail for South Carolina and uh, for Pittsburgh and people writing me notes saying, hey, we're watching what y'all are doing. It's having a big impact on our church and our community. And I thought, oh my goodness, uh, I hope I'm not doing anything wrong because they're, they're repeating it, right? <laughs> and, and so then I was, a friend of mine, Kerry Newhoff, who's a pastor in Toronto, he was in South Dakota and he was speaking in a community and there was a big sign that said, for the Pine Bluff and our same font and all this. And so he texts me and Kerry's Canadian, so he has to be nice. But even in this text, and it was, a, it, it was a nice text, but he said, hey, you're not being a good steward of this idea. There are people all, I, I, he carries this international speaker. He goes, I travel all over the place, and I see four all over the place. You're not being a good steward of this idea because you're not telling us how to do this. So these folks in Pine Bluff, South Dakota, they're trying to do this. They're picking this up off Instagram or Facebook, but they really don't know the heartbeat behind why you're doing this. So... He kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, I'm challenging you to write a book because you need to give us a resource. He goes, because I know how to do that. His church was doing this in Toronto as well. He goes, I know how to do this because you're one of my best friends. The people in Pine Bluff don't know because they don't, they don't know who you are. So he challenged me and connected me with his agent. And so the good news is, is that I've been living this for so long. It was fairly, I wouldn't say, I don't, none of, writing a book's never easy, but, but I mean, I had a goal, 500 words a day five days a week for eight weeks, and that would get me to my word goal. But it was, because we were living it, it was a fairly easy book to write in some, in some respects. And what's been fun since the book, the book's only been out a little while, so I have my cell phone in the back of the book, and every single day I get a text from somebody, someone that says, hey, here's some, some great insights, or here's some, some things I've, I've pulled away from the book, which is so encouraging and so, so inspiring to me. Today, though, I got a text from somebody that the Los Angeles soccer club, they just lost last night in the MLS playoffs. But, and I think Will Farrell, the comedian, is co-owner of them. They just started for Los Angeles. And it's the font and the whole deal. And I thought, oh, well, so what's exciting to me is it's kind of breaking through church world to go into the business world. 
which may be the first time in history that the church has ever influenced the business world. So that was really cool to see this morning. So that was, Carrie just really prompted me to go, you need to put this resource and give us some practical handles on this because right now we're all kind of making this up and you've got this Chick-fil-A background and all this stuff and you're not being a good steward. So I credit Carrie Newhoff for giving me the kind of the kick in the seat of my pants to go, let's get this thing done. Your book is very successful. People are, are reading it, they're talking about it. What is your most wildest dream that your book can do now that it's out there? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I do want to hit the New York Times and Amazon business bestseller, not church. I want to be, I want to influence the business world. And so it has hit number one on Amazon in a couple of business categories. I mean, that's, that would be my big, hairy, audacious goal mm-hmm. is for four to be number one in the business section. And the reason for this is I really do believe that in today's world, doing good is good for business. And I feel like if they can harness the principles in the book, which may, it may seem odd that a business book is written by a pastor, but that's part of the angle here is that you've got to start thinking more like this. You've got to start thinking more about how, how is your business for others? And what I tell business leaders is it's no longer about being the best company in the world. It's about being the best company for the world. And if you're not going to be for the world, just give it enough time. The world will find someone else to do business with. You know, what I've discovered about the publishing industry is how to figure out how to actually be the number one bestseller in business on the New York Times bestsellers list. No one really knows how that works. I was, somebody gave me this formula today. This is the formula. I'm just not worried about the formula. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going and I'm actually traveling around the country. I'm in uh, Florida next week. Uh, I was in Pittsburgh last week. I'm just going and talking to businesses. Now, these, are, these business breakfasts are actually hosted by churches in churches. But we don't talk. It's not a prayer breakfast. It has nothing to do with church other than, hey, this is a pretty cool venue. This is about, here are two questions that are going to grow your business. Here's a, here's a copy of the book. My cell phone's in the back. Let's help grow your business. And because I really do believe this comes, to, comes down to helping change the world. How do you change the world? Well, you, you, I really think it comes one community at a time. And if there's a community that improves today, then the world improves. Well, how do you improve communities? Well, I think you need to have thriving businesses. I think you need to have thriving schools. I think you need to have thriving churches. I think you need to have thriving people. And it all comes down to these two questions. So my dream is that it would really begin to influence the business world. And uh, who knows? We'll see if that happens. But I'm going to ask big for that. So I'm asking as many people as possible to help me with that. That's why when I got the text about the Los Angeles Football Club, now my ask big is, does anybody know Will Ferrell? Because <laughs> he's co-owner of this club, and they're using Ford Los Angeles. And I'm not charging them for that, by the way. So could Will Ferrell hold up the book. I mean, is that going to happen? I have no idea, but I'm going to try to find Will Ferrell. And so I'm emailing the Los Angeles Football Club today and trying to send them a book and saying, hey, could I come talk to y'all about this? So I I just want to let your listeners know I'm not asking them to do anything that I'm not already trying to do. But if they know Will Ferrell, buy your book and get your number in the back and let you know. You can text me and I will take you out to dinner in Los Angeles <laughs> with Will. And actually, so one of my sports heroes, Jerry West, who played with the Lakers. So last night in this, um, this playoff game that the, the Los Angeles team lost, 
they had Jerry West there, and it said Jerry West for Los Angeles. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm one step closer to Jerry West, who's the, I mean, he's the NBA logo. That's who he is. He played for the Lakers back in the day. And so, so anyway, it's, but I need to, I need to ask big for that. Well, we've created a link on our show notes page. Uh, if people go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash four, that's F-O-R, that will take them directly to an Amazon affiliate link so they can find your book. And of course, get your cell phone number that's in the back. That's right. That's right. And please text me. You know, my wife was concerned about this. She goes, you're going to have a lot of haters. And I'm, every time I get this, I, I send it to her. I said, no haters yet. So please don't be the hater. If you are, you would be the first one. But but what I ask, ask them to do in the book, which has been so great is, hey, tell me some of your takeaways. And people are specifically giving me takeaways. Here's what I'm going to implement in my business. And here's what I'm going to implement in, in this. And then, and then so we're able to have a dialogue. I had a great question the other day about something related to social media. And I said, well, if you'll tweak this a little bit, I think you'll see that it'll, it'll actually have help. And then they emailed back and said, hey, it worked. So, uh, and again, I'm not saying I'm the expert, but I'm a learner. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to learn as we go along. And I don't, I'm by no means a social media expert. I'm a little hesitant when people identify themselves as a social media expert. I mean, because it's... You're up there, though, Jeff. Well, this hasn't been around for a while. So it's like, it's all of it right now is just all kind of a, a test. Although I think the principles we talk about in the book will not go away. There may be platforms that go away. You know, Twitter is changing dramatically. Facebook is changing dramatically. There may be somebody else that comes on the scene that knocks them off. Who knows? But the idea of how to use it and how to be for people, that's something that will stand the test of time. But thanks for putting the info on your show notes. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And if somebody wants to learn more, is there a place that they can go? Sure. They can go to thefourcompany.com. And so I write a blog every week and then they can get on our email list as well. I do more emails than blogs. And so we're trying to be able to build that email community. And then we're thinking about in 2020, maybe doing our first four conference. And it would be specifically, not just for church leaders, it would be more specifically for business leaders. I think church leaders could learn from it. But we would walk them through those two questions because it's one thing to say, what do you wanna be known for? And you need to get clarity around that. But what I've discovered is business leaders are going, you're absolutely right, but I don't even know where to begin on that question. And so can you help me begin on that question? Well, the book's a start, but I think we're going to need to have a day where we just roll up our sleeves and go deep in terms of trying to find language around that. Because the problem is that a lot of organizations have a seven-paragraph mission statement, but vision's like a bucket of water. The more water you have in the bucket, the more the water and words spill out. Mm. So you've got to have some clarifying. We are for Gwinnett, eat more chicken, just do it, uh, making poverty history. Those kind of, and that's really hard language to come up with. It's not impossible. But so I think we're going to launch that next year to try to help business leaders think through that a little bit more. Well, it might sound like we're winding down, but I do have some lightning round questions for you. So are you ready? Yes, yes. And I haven't seen these before. (laughs) Let's see how it goes. So you now have the ability to go back in time and visit yourself on your very first day as a marketing professional. What advice would you give? Don't be afraid of failure. And don't ask, is this working? Ask, what are we learning? And don't make people want something, make something people want. And so when I was with the Braves, they weren't very good. 
So you got to make people want something, right? But what we understood is the best product is a winning team. And once you have a winning team, sales will take care of itself. So I would say, you know, fail forward and fail fast, but don't allow failure to get intermingled with your identity. That's one of the things I learned from Pixar is the directors who will succeed are the ones that can take criticism of the early drafts of the movie and not get so sensitive and that's so wired. What you're doing is you're not just criticizing their film, you're criticizing them. The director that could separate those and go, no, you're not talking about me. You're talking about the work and the film. Those are the ones that will succeed. So that's how you fail forward is that you separate your identity from the work, which is excruciatingly hard to do, but it can be done. What are the last three books that you've read? Should I say four? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I just finished Bob Iger's book, um, and Bob is the CEO of Disney, and it's called The Ride of a Lifetime. I mean, his book is so remarkable because it's giving you a, an inside look at Disney and his, how he um, took over from Michael Eisner and then the changing landscape of uh, entertainment and how they had to change Disney while the, you know, basically it's this plane flying in the sky and you're retooling the plane and you're flying and that's, or you're building the bridge as you walk on it. And so that book is remarkable. So I would highly recommend, recommend that one. Another book I read, Story Brand, which is Donald Miller. And, uh, you know, I would follow, you know, Donald's podcasts and, and all that. And then Team of Rivals, about uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, and then I would mention this one. This is a book that I've read. My goal is to read it once a year. And it's um, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. And the reason I need that is because I'm susceptible, like any of us, to pride and ego and all that kind of stuff and, and insecurity. And so Ego is the Enemy is, is, uh, is a really, really great book. So, uh, and then I've got two books, one of which you've read that I just got today. One of my favorite books. Yeah, Traction. Uh, but I have not read these. And then The Founder's Mentality, How to Overcome the Predictable Crisis of Growth. Well, you and I need to get back together and discuss traction because it has really changed how we do things in the company for the better. And it allowed us a platform that we now operate on. We knew water treatment. Okay, We were a great water treatment company, but all the other things that go along with that, nobody ever teaches you. Phenomenal book. I, I look forward to talking with yeah, you. Yeah, it was highly recommended by a former podcast guest of yours, Clay Scroggins. And so I'm looking forward to it. So I think I'm... I, I'd probably do this too. This isn't a good practice. I read too many books at the same time. So, but here I am. I'm going to start these two tonight. I'm actually impressed with that. I can't read two books at the same time. I can read books quickly, but if I read two at the same time, I can't remember which is in which. So, impressive talent. Well, I don't know how impressive it is. Well, come back to me in a few months to see if I've finished these. Fair enough. And I didn't want to make you nervous in the beginning, but Hollywood uses Scaling Up H2O to find what next year's movies are going to be. So when they hear you, they find out about your life, and they start casting Jeff. Who plays Jeff? Um, well, I'm a big Batman fan, so I would love Christian Bale. Can I, can I go with Christian Bale? Uh, that, would, that, would be, that would be great. I would probably go with, with Christian Bale. There you go. My last question, you now have the ability to go anywhere you want throughout time. Who would you talk with and why? Hmm. As a pastor, I've got to say Jesus, and that's a good answer. Um, but if you're like, hey, you can't, you can't go with Jesus. <laughs> I, 
Well, hold on. Before you go, what would you ask Jesus? Well, I'm, I'm pretty convinced I wouldn't have any questions. I would just say, tell me what I, what I need to know. And, um, and I think, you know, we, there are the questions. I had to do a funeral last week of an infant baby. And not to, not to get so deep and serious, but I mean, welcome to my world. And so I was talking to the family and they, I said, so what can I do to help? Well, if you can solve, like, why did this happen? And why does evil, you know, all these kind of questions. And I'm like, okay, and do you know anyone who knows the answers to that? <laughs> and it's just like, oh my goodness. So I think the big questions, but I think I would ask Jesus too, what, what's, what's excites you and what, what inspires, what inspires you and what inspired you to do what you, you did. And, uh, but I'm a big, um, big, you know, I'm from Atlanta. And so Martin Luther King Jr. is a, you know, native of Atlanta. And so, which is a very wonderful thing. And uh, I have had the opportunity to, speaking of asking big, I asked Andrew Young, who was part of the civil rights movement, two-time mayor of Atlanta, former UN ambassador. I just wrote him a note one time and said, would you meet with me and speak to our staff? And he wrote me back and said, yes. So there you go, back to early conversation. So I, I think, you know, definitely Martin Luther King, but, and then, I mean, obviously, could, I mean, we mentioned Team of Rivals with Abraham Lincoln. Talk about someone who did not let pride get in his way for doing the right thing. Abraham Lincoln was extraordinary. So Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, that's, that's a pretty good trio there. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for spending time on the podcast. I know we've learned a lot and there's so much more to learn. So I think some people are going to go out and get the book and you're probably going to get some texts. I hope so. I hope so. And we've got lunch now. So thanks for sticking around and having lunch with me. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Nation, we started this show with talking about some things that we could do to end 2019 correctly. And I mentioned one of those things was learning how to market better with your website and your social media. Well, if you did not get some ideas from this interview with Jeff Henderson, you need to go back and listen to it again. I tell you, I was taking vigorous notes. I am just amazed at how the nonprofit sector and the profit sector really have a lot in common. And think about people going to work as a volunteer. So they are going strictly because they want to forward the mission. And when we talk about work, and Jeff asked the question to somebody he was consulting with, well, how many of your employees here get paid? And of course, all of them. Imagine if you can have the same connection with your team where they all get behind the mission. And oh yeah, by the way, they also get paid. I can't imagine a better scenario. I hope that everybody listening to this podcast goes to their company and they ask those two questions that Jeff introduced us to. One, what are we known for? And then two, what do we want to be known for? Folks, when we can get those two questions to align, magic happens. And that's how volunteers go to work and they volunteer at a place and they don't care that they don't get paid. And that's the way that you connect people that do get paid at your company to connect to that mission and feel that they are making a difference, that they are part of something. So I hope you ask those questions, but more than that, I hope you do something about those questions. If you have not seen the Simon Sinek TED Talk, Start With Why, and we've got that linked on our show notes page, I urge you to watch that. 
Simon Sinek has this thing called the golden circle, and he goes through what happens when you start with why and how that transforms everybody's decisions when they start from why. Nation, if you have something you want me to talk about on Scaling Up H2O, by all means, do not keep that to yourself. Go to our website, scalinguph2o.com, and either go to our show notes page and leave me a message there, or you can record your voice by clicking on the leave voicemail button. Folks, thank you so much for being part of the Scaling Up Nation, and I'll talk with you next week.